Hello, and welcome to Language U, a podcast about language, literacy, multilingualism, and other stuff like that in higher education. My name is Joel Hanghartsey, and I'm coming to you from Vancouver, British Columbia. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Dr. Peter Wayne Moe, who is an associate professor of English and writing at Seattle Pacific University and author of the recent book, Touching This Leviathan, which is a great book about whales and language and writing and many other things. In this conversation, we discuss Peter's article, A Sequence for Teaching the Sentence, which he published in the journal Teaching English in the Two-Year College in 2018, and we have some more general discussion about what teaching sentences can do in the composition classroom. We also talk a bit about an exercise that I do with my students where I provide sentences to them to evaluate, and Peter evaluates some of my sample sentences that I give in my own classroom. So stick around for that part, which is at the end. Incredibly, Peter and I used to know each other. Uh, We went to high school together and played in a jazz band together. He was the bass player, I was the drummer. But now we both work in teaching writing in higher education. Thanks again for listening, and enjoy this conversation with the thoughtful Peter Wayne Moe. that I've read, like this um, article about a sequence for teaching the sentence that we'll talk about in a minute, or even your book, um, Touching This Leviathan, I was struck by the way that you, you really seem to focus in on some really fine grained, I really had this picture of you just like sitting with a single student and a single sentence. And even if that's not exactly how it was, you know, I'm sure you're not spending, you know, five hours with each student on each sentence, but um, I did get this sense of, um, of this attention to detail of this attention to the the small and the particular um, with an individual student, which I think is really cool. Um, and I'd be curious to know how you became um, to be kind of interested in focusing in on, focusing in on sentences where so much of, of how many of us are trained in composition is to look at very big picture things. So process and global yeah. concerns and argument. Um, and the sentence is like, you know, it's sort of seen as like a little bit old fashioned, right? Like, is this just grammar? You know, what is this? So I'm curious how, how you came to that interest and how that kind of has played out for you in the, in the classroom. Yeah. So, um, my wife is a speech therapist. So she works with kids who stutter, stutter or, you know, who are developmentally delayed or children with autism, Down syndrome, special needs children. And I'm just a fascinated by her work. And when I was in grad school, I was trying to somehow connect what I was doing in my studies with what she was doing as a speech therapist. Um, Because I just felt like, you know, we're both dealing with language and I wasn't quite able to connect the two. And then the movie, The King's Speech came out with uh, Colin Farrell, was it? Yeah, yeah, I think that's his name. I get him mixed up with the other Colin, yeah. (laughs) And then all of a sudden the light bulb went off and I was like, oh, of course, like delivery, that's it. Like she's doing delivery. Uh, but then I noticed that in composition, like we don't really care about delivery anymore. Like it's just kind of vacated the scene. Um, so I started researching up on delivery and some people were talking about delivery in terms of like, um, cause you know, when, when, when writing instructions shifted from, as I wrote in my dissertation from the stage to the page, uh, you know, voice and delivery, just kind of voice and gesture kind of became irrelevant. So I started looking at how people were talking about delivery and some people were talking about it in terms of like, fonts or in terms of like media or 
you know, website design and how like the material is actually being delivered. Multimodality, right? Yeah. Yeah. Multimodality. And I just started, I just had this light bulb one day where I thought, well, what if we started this talk to the sentence as a means of delivery? Um, because people talk about sentences in embodied terms already. Like somebody will say, oh, you know, oh, that, that writer's got a good voice, but referring to style, right? Um, or people talk about the way like a sentence moves on the page or, you know, that sentence, that sentence kind of trips over itself. I mean, there's all these like sort of embodied metaphors. Yeah, it's clunky. It's uh, jerky. I've, yeah. Whenever I try to explain these things to a student, they all, they always become physical. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the entry point then. If I started thinking about sentences in terms of bodies and delivery, that brought me into like, well, how is that delivery happening? It's happening through the sentence. Um, and so that was like the bridge between the King's speech and speech therapy over to a dissertation that was all about sentences. And so do you find that going from kind of a, a scholarly interest in that to the classroom, like how do students take that up? Because I, you know, if you're already a language nerd, like I've taken multiple grammar, like I've taken multiple sentence diagramming classes in, in my life, uh, but not everybody wants to do that. And not every first year composition student is excited about that. Um, so how do you find students um, take that up? And maybe we can talk a little bit about, because you include in this article you wrote, a sequence for teaching the sentence. You have your exercises, which I'm curious about kind of how you created those. I, I, it was really fun for me to see how those are similar to ones that I've done and also different. I don't do, I'm not so ambitious as to do really long sentences with my students. Um, but I'm curious about how the students took those up. What was it like? Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the sequence, but how do students take those up? What's it like to teach it? So Verlin Klinkeborg in his book, Several Short Sentences About Writing, has this great line where he says, your job as a writer is making sentences. And I love that, not only because, you know, poet, the word poet means like poesis, like to make, you know, but there's a sense of like, craftsmanship or building, you know? And I feel like that can get lost with composition and like when, in teaching writing classes. And at the end of the day, ultimately like we're making sentences. Um, and when I present this to students, I usually get a handful of students who like, I don't know, took Latin classes or something or had a classical education and they come in knowing all the rhetorical terms for like every little trick you could do in a sentence. And so they wanna like pin labels on everything. And I don't really feel like that's necessary because I, it's not it's not like a vocab test where I'm wanting them to like be able to name things. And they're obsessed with like correction, correctness and conventions. And then other students are just freaked out by the whole prospect. Um, and so I wanted to come up with this assignment sequence that would sort of turn the sentence into like a playground and a place where they could just try things out. Because ultimately I want them not to be able to like name the Greek terms for whatever's happening, but I want them to be able to like well, as um, Francis Christensen once said, for the students to be sentence acrobats, mm. to dazzle by their syntactic dexterity, which yeah. is again, one of those body metaphors, right? The totally. sentence acrobatics. Um, yeah, I want them to be able to just like fool around with a sentence and make it do something cool. It doesn't matter if you know, like what the Roman word is for it, you know? Um, do you want me to just talk through some of the assignments then? Yeah, I'm curious about how, I mean, some of them, so like the sentence combining one, I'm pretty familiar with that. You know, that's a kind of a classic, even, even in a more traditional sort of like grammar oriented one. But I was really intrigued by like your six word sentences or your longer sentences. Yeah. So the first, the first assignment is they have to write like a paragraph of at least 200 words in only six word sentences, which, and they can't just like, you know, count six words and put a period. Like they have to be grammatically correct six word sentences. And I came up with this idea because of Vernon Klinkenborg again. Um, I had emailed with him a while ago 
and he was describing to me how he like how he runs his writing classes and he starts everybody in the class off with six words and they're all writing two page papers every week and as you show your proficiency he'll let people like advance so he'll be like well joel you can go up to 10 words but peter wow. you're gonna be at six <laughs> and like one by you know like so certain students advance quicker than others and i just thought that is so fascinating so i thought i'd have my students start off with six word sentences and the number of them say this like the hardest exercise they can do because they keep wanting to make the sentence bigger and they have to start thinking in smaller and smaller chunks. Yeah, so a number of students find this is like one of the hardest ex exercises because they think in bigger chunks and they have to start. And then there's it's challenging too to make it not be clunky. I mean, I think um, they, they quickly see that like sentence variety is important. And like the way they're starting off the sentence, if you start every sentence off with I, it gets really repetitive really quick. Right. Um, so then from there, we move into a sentence combining exercise, which then they're like ready to start, you know, graduating to longer sentences. So I asked them to take that same six word sentences, that paragraph, and then start putting the pieces together. Um, the next assignment is uh, I find a long sentence. And in this case, it's this 116 word sentence by Guy Davenport. I just love it. Um, and I asked them to break that sentence up into short sentences, no more than 10 words. And so this is sort of like the opposite of sentence combining, because um, they have to like figure out what the governing verb is of the passage and then start pulling it apart. And once you start pulling it apart, you're going to need more verbs, you know? <laughs> so they have to like invent, you know, they have to like sort of reverse engineer this sentence. Uh, that one is a ton of fun. And then all of that is sort of build up to the fourth assignment, which is then asking them to write a hundred word sentence. Uh, and actually, when I first started coming up with the sentence sequence, I started off one quarter just with the 100 word sentence. I was like, oh, this will be awesome. And it was a train wreck, complete train wreck, <laughs> because the students had like no preparation, you know? Um, and so then I just, you know, then I prefaced it with the short sentences and then the sentence combining and then pulling apart a sentence. And then I was like, right, go write a 100 word sentence. And again, it was a train wreck. And I was trying to think, how do I make this helpful? And then I, so I, so that I told them they have to start with a kernel sentence something really short, like Joel went to the store. And then they have to add on like chunks, either, you know, Joel went to the store after lunch, you know, before he went to the movies, Joel went to the store after lunch and they start adding on pieces. Um, and I asked them to lay it out on the page, like each new sentence with the added on part in bold. And then all of a sudden when students started like building it like that, I was getting these amazing hundred word sentences um, because they, they could like, they could do it if they started thinking in terms of the kernel sentence, you know, like the, the heart, the heart at the core of the whole thing. That's such a good way also to teach. I, I'm struck sometimes by, I'm always looking for connections between kind of more traditional linguistics and sociolinguistics and writing, because I have a lot of background in those areas. And uh, it's it's teaching, it also is teaching this Chomskyan notion that of the infinite possibility with finite resources of language, right? That's, I, I always try to get my students excited. I was like, do you understand? Do you realize that this this is this is the mystery? I, behold, I tell you a mystery. We have a finite number of resources and we can make it go forever. Like, do you realize how amazing that is? <laughs> I had a one student who kept going with her hundred word sentence and she ended up turning in a 600 word sentence. I love it. <laughs> it was amazing. It's so cool. Um, from there, we go to this next assignment, uh, which is cutting in half. Um, and I use this paragraph. It's one of my favorite paragraphs ever from this essay by Kathleen Jamie called the Haval Zalen. Um, it's this essay where she goes and visits this, um, this museum in Norway that has the largest collection of whale skeletons in the world. 
And she writes this beautiful paragraph describing what it's like to walk underneath the whale, this blue whale that's hanging from the ceiling. And Kathleen Jamie walks under it and she counts her steps and it's 57 paces to get to the end of the whale. So that paragraph was 151 words. And so I asked the students to cut it down to 75 words and then to cut it in half again down to like 38 words or so. Um, and then it's fascinating because I'll bring into class a handful of the students like 38 word versions, you know, so maybe like four or five of them. And we start looking to see like what are the similarities between these. And there's certain like phrases from the original paragraph that seems to carry through everybody's like really short version. But then like it's interesting to see like certain students keep some phrases and they cut other phrases and you can see the differences between what you know each reader felt was valuable. Um, and I love that exercise because I think it starts to teach them that editing is always, um, I mean, it's always rhetorical in terms of what you're gonna keep and what you're gonna cut. And that and it's always driven by like what the writer's concerns and interests are as evident by we end up with all these different 38 word, 38 word versions of this long paragraph. Totally, I was just gonna say, you know what, trying to focus them on what matters to you and why, like not simply there's one, I do a similar exercise with just very dry academic summarizing. I give the students like a 1200 word article and I ask them to write a 100 word summary, which is cruel almost. Um, but then we unpack, I notice, hey, your partner thought this detail was important. They thought it was really important to talk about what the formula was of this chemical compound. But you didn't mention that, but you did think it was important to mention the historical context that experiment was done in. And so we get to have a really good discussion about that kind of stuff, yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a delight, yeah. yeah. Um, after that, we moved to an imitation exercise, which is, you know, that's pretty classical. That's like, that's, um, that's about as traditional as it gets as far as sentences. And I often will pull sentences from our readings from that quarter so that the students are kind of familiar with the sentences. They've seen them before. And then I ask them to plug their own content in. And then the last exercise we do is probably the hardest. I think it's the hardest. It's a real doozy. Um, do you know Raymond Quinault? No, I, I, yeah, I didn't, but it was incredible to me what you <laughs> described here. Oh my goodness. So he's got this book called Exercises in Style where he takes the same, he has this, there's a short story. It's like a paragraph long about this guy who gets on a bus and somebody insults him about his neck being too long and they get in a little bit of a fight and then like the guy gets off the bus. It's, it's a weird little story, but he retells it 99 different ways. And it's just like page after page of different retellings and they're all like really wild stylistic retellings. Um, and so I asked them to do kind of something similar where they take like a sentence of theirs and rewrite it in 15 different styles. Um, you know, I'm, I'm nice. I don't ask them to do it at 99 different ways like Quinnell. <laughs> uh, but that one's kind of fun because it really stretches them as, and they're like trying to find out different ways like sometimes students will like rewrite the sentence as a haiku and then they'll might rewrite it as like a business memo or they'll rewrite it as a text message or, you know, so they're like trying out sort of like different genres and different styles along the way. But what I like about what you describe here is it's not just the doing of the thing itself. That's, that's all well and good and that's interesting. It's the reflection on it, right? I think this assignment wouldn't be what it is that as you describe in your article without this notion of a, it being a portfolio and there being a cover letter and this type of thing, right? Yeah, I should add pretty much every, every single one of these assignments, after they do the assignment, it asks them, like at this rewriting one, the assignment says, you know, after we've got your 15 sentences, write a paragraph where you consider whether it's still the same sentence. Mm. How does the meaning change when the sentence changes or does the meaning change 
which version of the sentence is the best and under what circumstances. So every one of these exercises, you know, after they do it, I'm asking them to write a paragraph of like thinking about what, what have I just done? And I think that's the real key because then they can start to see that like playing with these sentences, um, you know, it's fun in games, but it also, there's like some rhetorical import as well. well and even from an assessment standpoint, I, I, I feel silly that, well, maybe I don't feel silly, but it, it blew my mind when I read, and I forget the guys, I think it's Ed White is his name. He's like, does writing assessment stuff in his book where he talked about assessing the cover letter rather than, I mean, I'm oversimplifying, but it's like assessing the cover letter rather than the portfolio. And I was like, oh my gosh, of course. Like that's, it was a, it was a revelation to me almost in its simplicity. Not, not that the work isn't important, but almost that it's grist for this kind of higher level thinking about like, why do I choose to make the decisions that I do with language? Yeah. Um, which to me is um, not, I, I think usually that's not what students come into a writing class expecting to do. And I have, think I've seen and hope that it's rewarding for them. So. Yeah. And the course that I use these in is a first year writing course and it's a portfolio course. And so at the end, you know, they're, they're revising some of their big essays, they're writing a cover letter. Um, and it's always surprising to see how often these sentence exercises show up in the cover letter when students are talking about how they understand rhetoric and how they understand audience uh, and the, how they understand the decisions they're making as a writer. Um, working at the sentence level, I think, helps highlight a lot of those issues. Absolutely. So th this is a slight change of gears, but not too much because it's related to to a sentence that you used here. You also um, recently published a book, Touching This Leviathan, which is mostly about whales, but is also about writing and about yeah. sentences and about other things. Um, and I, I'm curious, I think, I think you talk about this a little bit even in that book, but I'm curious as to how those two things, it's very clear from reading the book. And as someone who had briefly known you many years ago, I certainly had no idea of your obsession with whales. I mean, you make it very clear that this is much more than just a, a passing academic interest for you. Right. Um, how did you come to sort of marry those things to, to write about whales, but also find a way to make it be about language and using language and, and writing? When I was in grad school and I was working on my dissertation, or rather, you know, procrastinating on my dissertation, uh, I've, I've been like obsessed with whales ever since I was a kid. And at one point I thought, well, maybe I should try to write about them. Because uh, I read somewhere, and I want to say it's Aristotle, but I know it's not Aristotle. Um, one of those classic rhetoricians said that rhetoric has no subject matter. And, uh, and I took that as sort of a green light to be like, well, I can write about whales then if there's no like, you know, set parameters of what we're supposed to talk about. So when I was in grad school, I published three articles about whales. Um, one was in like a Leviathan, the Melville, the Melville Studies Journal. Uh, one was in like in a um, literature and inter, what is it, IELTS, interdisciplinary studies and literature and environment. So, you know, I published a couple of essays on whales. And then you fast forward 10 years and I still was thinking about whales a lot. And I just thought, you know, I should try to pull this into a book. Um, but I realized that I'm not a biologist. And, you know, biologists are the people who write books about whales. So I was trying to think, well, what can I add to this? And I realized like, well, I'm a writer. I think a lot about words. And I was wondering if words could be the way in to talking about whales. And so the, like you said, the book's a lot about language and a lot about, about writing um, because that's like, that's what I know. And that was, a, that was my pathway in to, to talk about the whales. Well, and also I just, it just occurred to me that 
what's the thing I most remember from my very first college English class? It was learning about Kennings in Beowulf. And the one that I always remember is Whale Road. Right? So yeah. if you if you studied English, your whales are on your mind from the beginning. Um, I, I would love for you to read a little bit of, uh, of it. So this comes from um, the third chapter. And I'm, I, I, earlier in the chapter, I quote that same passage from Kathleen Jamie that I mentioned earlier, where she's walking under the skeleton of the whale. That, that's the passage I used in that sentence assignment. Um, and in that, in that paragraph, Kathleen Jamie mentions that this blue whale that she's walking under is 57 paces long. Um, and so then the, the, the chapter takes up sort of like a classroom scene where we're reading that passage. And this is what it says. I wonder what 57 paces looks like. As our discussion continues, I pace the classroom counting steps in my head. For a moment, I think of telling my students that Jamie's whale is roughly four times the length of this room we're in. But then I remember the old writing adage, show, don't tell. It would be better for them to see these 57 paces themselves. We grab our coats, push through the double doors, head to a nearby road and gather under a lamppost. I ask a student to walk Jamie's 57 paces. As she begins, the 15 of us standing in the rain, guess how far these 57 paces will take her. She calls out every 10 steps, passing some shrubs, two flower beds, a few more lampposts along her way. We soon realize our predictions are all well short. A few weeks later, in response to Kathleen Jamie walking under that blue whale skeleton, a student writes that Jamie, quote, taught me perspective. I wonder about the use of perspective here. I think back to a moment in elementary school when as an art in art class, I learned what foreshortening means. To create depth on the page, I could draw objects close to the viewer larger and objects farther away smaller. With Jamie, perspective comes when we see the whale in relation to her. A reader knows how large a human is and how long a stride is. Setting the whale against these gives perspective. The student continues, reading Jamie taught me perspective as did physically walking out the paces of the length of the whale described in the essay. For this student, it's not enough to read about the whale, not enough to imagine what it must be like to walk 57 paces. No, it's the physically walking that gives perspective. This knowledge is embodied. The student finds perspective only once her body is engaged, her legs moving, her muscles contracting, her lungs inhaling and exhaling, her shoulders wet from the rain. I note too her syntax, the way she piles on preposition after preposition after preposition, out the paces of the length of the whale described in the essay. Perspective comes through grammar. Just as Jamie sets herself against the whale to create perspective, the student's sentence sets walking alongside paces, alongside length, alongside whale, alongside essay to do the same. The sentence reaches across the page just as Jamie's whale does the room. This sentence is not as lean as it might be, as did physically walking out the paces of the length of the whale described in the essay, could be much shorter. Physically isn't necessary. Is there any way to walk but physically? And those prepositional phrases could be tightened up too into something like this, as did walking the whale's length. There, six words instead of 17, one third the length, but something is lost in this economy. 
the sense of movement, the sense of length, the sense of exhaustion at striding along step after step after step, preposition after preposition after preposition, trying to reach the end of that 57 pace whale. The plotting prepositions are not extraneous to this sentence, but essential to it. The sentence works because it's ungainly, very like a whale. I love that. And I, as even though I've read this before, I, I wasn't expecting you to get to the point where I believed that that sentence worked the way that it did. Because as when you read it the first time, I was like, ah, stacking up prepositions, it's clunky. And then I, I heard the paces as you were reading it. So there's delivery again, right? Yeah. There's an orality to it. Um, yeah. and, and yet it's all, it also becomes, um, that, that I think is where um, style can be both an, an oral slash oral thing and yeah. something that works on the page too, because as you read it, you begin to inhabit that same kind of rhythm, which is really cool. So uh, Peter, I've given you this list of sentences that I give to my students and I wasn't sure, I was a little embarrassed about sharing them with you because I wasn't sure what you'd think of them, but I'd love to do a little rapid fire not, I don't want you necessarily to review the sentences, like give yeah, them five, yeah. five stars, although that'd be kind of fun. But I give my students this list of sentences. So this is where our interests intersect a little. And I ask them just, what do you think of these? And I do it on the very first day of class. And I ask, I ask things like, do you think it's a good sentence or a bad sentence? Do you like it? Does it work for you? I try to go beyond simplistic, um, simplistic uh, things like that. But I would love to just take a look at these with you. Yeah. and see what you think. Maybe we can skip some of the longer ones, unless you have, well, let me ask you this. Were there any that stuck out to you in this list? And I'll, I'll post a link to this in the show notes as well. Out of this list of eight, were there any that st stood out to you as sentences that you thought worked or didn't work? Um, three and seven. And yes. Three, five, and seven. I was really Okay, struggling. let's talk about them because three is one of my all-time favorite sentences. Um, as he read, I fell in love the way you fall asleep slowly and then all at once. And that's John Green from The Fault in Our Stars. And there's a colon after fall asleep, which I think is interesting. What, what, what strikes you about that sentence? I love the, the, just the poetic use of fell and fall, which was really nice. And I love the way that like falling in love is similar to falling asleep, but also kind of different in a way, but it's still the same metaphor of falling. But so I love the way that that word is being played with. And then after the colon, you get the word slowly with this comma, which I think slows down the sentence, but then it kind of speeds up with, and then all at once period, because those are all these like monosyllabic words. And so I just think it's really neat that the sentence sort of invites you to read it the way that it's what it's talking about. As I read, I fell in love with the way you fall. I fell in love the way you fall asleep slowly and then all at once. I love it. And it's, it's just, I just think that's a masterful sentence. I'm, I'm uh, yeah, every time I read it and every time I explain what I like about it to my students, I just fall in love with it all over again. Now the Wendell Berry sentence, this is from his classic essay, why I'm not going to buy a computer. It's harder for me to get my students excited about this sentence, but it's very interesting structurally. So the sentence is, um, if the use of a computer is a new idea, then a newer idea is not to use one. So what jumps out here? Um, I love Wendell Berry, by the way. Uh, I wrote him a letter a couple years ago and he wrote back. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I think that he thinks I'm sort of dim-witted based on what he wrote, but. <laughs> well, he's, I'm sure he's, he's a kind, you know, he wouldn't hold it against you. 
so I love you know this sentence. My my son right now is obsessed with those if you give a mouse a cookie books. And so I'm very familiar with the sort of if da, 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 then that sort of pattern. But I feel like Wendell Berry like subverts that because the when he says a newer idea is not to use one, the I mean I feel like new suggests some sort of positive term. Like new is going to add something new, like it's going to bring something new into the sentence. But he like takes that away from you and flips it on its end and say, no, new is actually taking things away and negating things. That's what's new. Um, so again, I, I just love how he's, I feel like when we hit the word, you know, if we're using a computer is new, then a newer idea, we're expecting like the, like the greatest new thing. And then he just like flips it around. He pulls the rug right out from under you, which is, Again, I like how the structure sort of um, supports the content, right? Or they were, you can't have the one without the other. Because I feel like I'm expecting, you know, if the use of a computer is a new idea, then a newer idea is an iPad. Right? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> All right. And the next one is one, I have to admit, I added this one. I haven't used it in class yet, but I discovered it a few years ago and I, I liked it so much. Um, and I have actually spent several, I would say I've spent a good half hour trying to diagram this sentence just because it's so much fun to try. And that is sentence number seven on this list. Um, so it's attributed to uh, someone called Frederick Temple, who I believe was a clergy, clergy person in England uh, in uh, bygone days. And the sentence that he is alleged to have said is, you believe that I believe what I believe because of the way I was brought up because of the way you were brought up. Let me try that again with inflection that I think will help it be more understandable. You believe that I believe what I believe because of the way I was brought up, because of the way you were brought up. Even then, I'm not sure I did it right. <laughs> what do you think about this one? Oh, man. So when I read the sentence, it reminded me of that scene in Princess Bride when they're like drinking the poison. And- uh... So I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The thing I love about this sentence is it reminded me of like those Russian nesting dolls, you know, where you like set them inside. And so I was looking at this similar to you trying to diagram it, figuring out what the core of the sentence is. And it's in the very middle when he says, I believe. Mm. And then the cool thing is you can add, you start at, like from that centerpiece, you start working outwards. So you could say, I believe, and then you could say, I believe what I believe. And then you could add on to the, the back end and say, I believe what I believe because of the way I was brought up. But then here's where it gets really interesting because the, the, the opening and closing phrase have to be added on together because you couldn't say, you believe that I believe what I believe because of the way I was, actually, no, you can do that. Well, you, you could, you, you could, but it wouldn't give you, I mean, that's what's so interesting about it is that it, the nest, like that works as one, but you add one more doll, right? Like it still works to have not the complete set of dolls, but you, you put that last one together and then that's what gives it, it kind of its, um, it's, uh, I wouldn't call it an, you know, it's sort of this church, Churchillian uh, sort of back at you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just love that you, yeah, you just keep adding on these layers. And I mean, I think that'd be kind of a fun assignment to give students to see like, how far could they take this? You know, how, how much, like what other layers could they keep adding on? Absolutely. So I'm going to, I'm going to keep collecting these. Some of them, it's funny to see. So there's another sentence I put in here just for fun. Uh, Jesus wept which is famously like the shortest Bible verse. Uh, I had one student, you know, I don't, my school is not religious at all, but um, I had one student say, well, I think that's a really, you know, really powerful sentence. And I was like, why? And he, and he sort of thought for a minute, and he's like, 
because Jesus. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I don't think this kid was religious or if he was, he wasn't Christian, but it was just, it was just funny. He's like, clearly that that's a big deal. But, but even that, even that two word sentence, I, you know, we talk about somebody I love that the students say, they're like, well, it doesn't say Jesus cried, you know? And they're like, yeah, that wouldn't. And then it becomes a, even in that two word sentence, it becomes about diction. We already have the subject. And it's that one word choice that that seems to make a lot of difference to people because well, in that sense, I think is interesting too. Because it'd be it'd be interesting to see the verses that are on either side of it. Because you know, if it's prefaced with like a 12 word sentence and you get this two word sentence and then like a 30 word sentence, it's gonna stand out even more, you know. Absolutely. Well, listen, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. This has been really fun. I and I feel like I could do this all day. Um but thank you for your time. It's so, it's just a delight to talk to you after all these years. It's just really, it's really blown my mind. It's, uh, well, it's great. Well, thanks for having me on, Joel. And Absolutely. The book. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Language U is made by me, Joel Hanghartsey. If you have suggestions for a topic for a future episode or would like to be a guest, please send me an email at jhanghar at sfu.ca. That's J-H-E-N-G-H-A-R at sfu.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.